You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, September 14th, 2021. Later in the program, we revisit a feature report from WFHB correspondent Brianna Devon on the history of PCB contamination in Bloomington. More in the bottom half of tonight's program. Also coming up in the next half hour, the Bloomington Walk to End Alzheimer's raised over $100,000 over the weekend. WFHB News spoke with Kyle Davern, manager for the Bloomington Walk to End Alzheimer's. But first, your daily headlines. Nearly 440 people participated in the Bloomington Walk to End Alzheimer's over this past weekend. The walk happened in person at Switchyard Park and remotely by watching an online ceremony where people participated in a local walk in their own neighborhoods. Participants raised over $100,000 to help the care, support, and research of the Alzheimer's Association. WFHB News spoke with Kyle Davern, manager for the Bloomington Walk to End Alzheimer's. Davern shared some of the work the Alzheimer's Association does. So the Alzheimer's Association, we're the leading voluntary health organization for Alzheimer's care, support, and research. Our, our kind of bread and butter of what we do is we, we work with families who are impacted by Alzheimer's and all dementia. So they are looking for care and support research, resources. They have access to our um, complete uh, options, kind of a, a menu of different things that they can have access to. We have a 24-7 helpline, which is something that's accessible for any caregiver to call into get questions answered about the disease, um, get information about local resources as well. Um, we also have support groups, which we are doing those virtually for the, the time being during the pandemic, but we do normally offer those as an in-person component just to kind of build that network of caregivers in the community and be able to share ideas on how to have those tips and tricks for caregiving as well. Um, and then we also offer education programs. So if employers or companies are looking to educate their workforce about Alzheimer's and dementia, and then also just kind of caregiving duties as well, too. We offer those programs at free of charge. Um, beyond just those programs and services, we also fund research. So we are one of the leading health organizations in funding Alzheimer's uh, research. So we, we don't fund research just here in the United States, but we fund uh, research globally as well. And then um, here in the state of Indiana also, and on a federal level, we advocate for Hoosier caregivers and people living with the disease making sure that there are bills being passed or introduced within legislation that helps benefit caregivers and the person living with the disease as well. Davern says participants in the walk were energized and excited to take part in the in-person portion of the event. He said that level of excitement helped the fundraising effort. Davern explained how the $100,000 raised over the weekend will be spent. Some of our, our care and support resources will continue to make those uh, accessible to all Hoosier caregivers, and those will be at no cost to that, those individuals, helping fund that 24-7 helpline, which I think is really a critical component of, uh, it's a critical tool that's accessible to Hoosier caregivers because they are, you, you, their loved one may have, you know, 
um, an unusual behavior that happens in the middle of the night, and they can call up any time of day whenever it's convenient for them to help get those tips and tricks or you know questions answered. Um, but also, I think the biggest thing is just funding for research to find a cure for this disease. Um, unfortunately, Alzheimer's is one of the leading causes of death in the United States, and um, it doesn't have a way to cure or slow down the progression of the disease. And so that's what we're really aiming to eventually have that first survivor of Alzheimer's. And that day we know is in our foreseeable future. More than 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's disease, a leading cause of death in the United States. In addition, more than 11 million family members and friends provide care to people living with Alzheimer's and other dementias, according to data from the Alzheimer's Association. Davern touched on the effect of Alzheimer's has on one's life and how it impacts family and friends providing care for their loved ones. Speaking from you know, personal experience, I, I actually had um, some close relatives who were diagnosed with Alzheimer's. That's kind of what got me involved with the um, organization. And, you know, I think one of the things just seeing, you know, the caregiving duties done from afar, I think one of the things is it really just kind of isolates the caregiver in, in one situation. You know, my, my grandfather was a caregiver for my grandmother who was uh, in the very late stages of Alzheimer's. But they weren't able to go out and do as much just because her, her behaviors change on a day-to-day basis. And so I, I think what we as an organization uh, from the Alzheimer's Association standpoint is being able to equip caregivers with those tools and knowledge of the disease so they can help better prepare and provide that better quality of life for the individual living with the disease and then be able to help with their own caregiver stress as well. Because we know that unfortunately we've seen circumstances where caregivers unfortunately passed before the person living with the disease just because of the financial implications, the stress of caregiving. And so that's some of the you know, stories that we hear on a day-to-day basis. He elaborated on how Alzheimer's disease impacted him on a personal level. Well, and I think one of the things for me just gave me a different understanding, you know, being able to connect with other individuals because I, I was very closely connected just with my own inner circle of um, you know, family being personally Um, being the direct caregivers for someone living with the disease, but being able to meet individuals and hear their stories in each of the communities. And then also working with some of our healthcare provider, um, you know, long-term care facilities who are providing that daily care for a person living with the disease as well. Um, It gave me a new perspective on just being able to understand, you know, the, the different stages of the disease, how to properly care for someone living with the disease as well, but just making sure that, you know, whenever we can assist as an organization that people use us as a resource to help provide that, that decreased caregiver stress. Davern says more information for local in-person and virtual programs are available at alz.org slash Indiana slash programs. You can also call the 24 hour seven day a week helpline at 1-800-272-3900. At the September 10th meeting, Mayor John Hamilton shared a positive message about the rates of COVID-19 cases in Bloomington. Well, there's some hope looking at the state data. We we talk about that data and there does, uh, there's some indications of uh, improvement statewide in cases and deaths. Uh, It's too early to know if that's a trend. We've seen these bumps before. Um, I will say, you know, our county, the only county in the state with a mask mandate, I believe, is still one of only three counties uh, in yellow in the better status, which is reminding us the importance of what we're doing. On behalf of the Monroe County Board of Health, Health Administrator Penny Claudill 
gave an update on vaccinations in Monroe County. She shared that there are vaccine clinics available at schools to make it easier for families to get vaccinated, and that Monroe County's vaccination rate is slowly but steadily going up. As of today, we have 59% of those who are eligible have been fully vaccinated. So we're creeping closer to that 60% that we hoped we would get to earlier this summer. And if we are at 60% you know, <laughs> next week, I think I'll do a happy dance just because we've, we've hit that mark, right? So please consider being vaccinated. During public comment, Dave Askins asked Caudill about the county health department's future with mask mandate enforcement and how the resources could be better used to get more people vaccinated. She explained ways that vaccine outreach could be improved with more resources devoted to them. So what we would like is for everyone to wear a mask, whether there's a recommendation or mandate. If it is recommended um, or mandated, please wear your mask. We know that masks work. So number one, we want people to mask up while we have high levels of transmission, with, with which we do. Um, in terms of what we could do, um, there's another question, and I'm going to kind of jump and add it in. I don't know who asked it. Somebody asked a question about the number of people who received a first dose but haven't received their second dose. We could put efforts into reaching out to those individuals, making sure that they, in fact, did receive their, their second dose or making that available to them. Uh, we can do more targeted, very specific, kind of time-consuming types of outreach. We know that we spend a lot of time and energy putting together these outreach clinics, sometimes to only do one or two vaccines. So if we could work with individuals on the front end to ensure that we have a group of people who are ready to take that vaccine, who have their questions answered, then we could be there and know that we are going to provide vaccine for them. Uh, so there are lots of ways that I think that we could improve what we're doing in terms of outreach. The next COVID-19 press conference will be on September 17th. On September 9th, the Monroe County Solid Waste Management District Board adopted the five-year solid waste management plan. Board member Cheryl Munson thanked everyone who worked on the project. So let me just say before we take a vote, a huge thank you to the people who worked so hard on this, um, both in the district administration and in the CAC. And today uh, at our meeting, we have uh, Joseph Winia and Brian Conway, but there were many other members of the CAC who participated uh, in the hard work of revising and updating this plan. Board member Isabel Piedmont-Smith moved to adopt the resolution for the five-year plan. The motion passed with four affirmative votes. The plan will be available to the public to view on the Monroe County website. One month ago, our correspondent Brianna Devon reported on the history of PCB contamination in Bloomington. In today's feature report, we revisit that feature, which happened in the aftermath of the EPA's move 
to declassify three PCB contamination sites in the Bloomington area. We turn to Devin for more. This summer, the EPA moved to declassify three PCB contamination Superfund sites in the surrounding Bloomington area. The decommission of these cleanup sites from the national priority list draws a decades-long environmental movement to a close. For those who were there, to witness the contamination and the resulting fights for public health and environmental safety, perceptions of whether the EPA's cleanup was successful vary. Yet, there seems to be a consensus that this story of community activists rallying in the wake of environmental catastrophe has earned Bloomington a spot in the history books. I've been a journalist here for 40 years. This is unquestionably the biggest, uh, most consequential issue that this community has ever faced. It became a nationally known fight here. And I'm sure it inspired people to keep fighting in their own communities. People came to Bloomington, Indiana to learn about PCBs. Journalist and professor Stephen Higgs has been following the story of PCB contamination in southern Indiana every step of the way, starting all the way back with the initial contamination. Well, Westinghouse Electric Corporation used to have a manufacturing plant out on Curry Pike on the west side of Bloomington where they made electrical capacitors, which are the boxes that sit on top of uh, electricity poles, okay? Those capacitors were filled with oils that contain PCBs. The, the, the reason PCBs are in there is because PCBs are almost indestructible. PCBs, you need to heat them to 2000 degrees in order to cause them to break down. So they were perfect for electricity coming into a box where it has to be stored, which of course is very hot. So they used PCBs, uh, electrical companies used PCBs in those boxes that Westinghouse manufactured. And Westinghouse manufactured those from the 50s up until the 70s when we discovered how toxic and dangerous they actually were. So what happened was, well, they were manufacturing them out there, of course, things go wrong, right? So when they would have defective capacitors, when something would go wrong, they would just take those capacitors and throw them away, put them, in, send them, put them on trucks and take them to various landfills in and around Bloomington that became Superfund sites. The Lemon Lane landfill, which was the city dump, was a huge one. Neal's landfill on West, uh, out on West Highway 48 was a big one. Uh, but there were six of those places scattered around Bloomington where old defective capacitors actually went to. So for so 20 years of capacitors that built up, I actually just read today that when they excavated Lemon Lane landfill, they found one place where there was 15 feet high of old electrical capacitors that were just piled up and dumped in the same place there. In terms of contamination from one source, Westinghouse, this is the biggest in the entire United States. In the wake of the mass contamination of such a toxic substance, public officials at all levels of government began the urgent search for a cleanup solution. The EPA came out with a proposal to address the contamination along with another common local environmental issue. 
Monroe County had two major environmental problems. One was the landfill, which was overflowing. We didn't know what we were going to do with our trash, and we had the PCD problem. Well, our city administration, uh, the mayor's office, along with the state of Indiana, the EPA, well, their solution was to build an incinerator, an experimental incinerator, something that has never been built before, had never been done anywhere in the country, that was going to burn the PCBs at 2,000 degrees, and they were going to fuel it with trash. The idea to use solid waste as fuel to burn PCPs in an incinerator may sound innovative in theory, but in practice, issues quickly begin to arise. One problem being that trash would likely be an inefficient resource. Common solid wastes are made up of materials that would likely not be able to heat the PCBs to the intense temperature necessary for their destruction. Another issue presented by the incinerator solution had community members banding together in order to halt the cleanup process. But what they were going to be doing was taking those PCBs, which are highly toxic, almost indestructible uh, materials, and when they destroyed them, they would basically condense that into dioxins and purines. Dioxins being the active agent in Agent Orange, essentially because of the potential health risk that was going to come from a PCB incinerator downwind from the city of Bloomington in Indiana University campus, people in, in this community rose up uh, and fought it tooth and nail because we felt it was going to take a terrible problem and make it even worse. Community member Linda Green, a member of People Against the Incinerator, was one such activist. Green explains the difficult road those who opposed the incinerator faced. When the incinerator was first proposed, the city, the county, the state, and the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, and the EPA all okayed the incinerator. So those of us who were fighting the incinerator had a huge battle on our, on our hands with all the public officials against us. It was a very difficult and exhausting process because we were up against everybody. We just went to every city meeting, every county meeting. We just made a fuss constantly. We did a huge amount of research. In fact, people who had no scientific background were plunged into the science of incineration. Ultimately, their civic engagement and environmental activism was successful, and the incinerator plan was discarded. Stephen Higgs explains that though many public officials were sure the incinerator was a safe solution, public outrage at the prospect of further toxic pollution won out. They were still adamant that they were going to build that incinerator, but it was not a bad deal. They never backed down from, from the fact that it was a good idea, but politically it just became untenable. Because when you burn 650,000 cubic yards of contaminated materials, you get 600,000 cubic yards of, of, of contaminated ash. And that had to go someplace. After the hard-fought battle against the incinerator, the EPA still had to come up with a solution to the PCP problem. 
a local consent decree laid out the plan to capture and remove PCPs from the southern Indiana environment and take the toxic materials elsewhere for treatment. And now, after decades of the capture and removal process, the EPA's move to declassify the Superfund sites signals a successful cleanup. However, some community members are still skeptical. With health concerns at the core of toxic contamination and years of fighting for a safe cleanup, Linda Green points out that people may be wary of believing the EPA's claims. I think there's a tremendous amount of corruption at all levels. I think the official story is making it look like it's all taken care of. I think there's still a problem here. However, Thomas Alcamo, the EPA's remedial project manager for the Bloomington sites, reassures that the cleanup process has been rigorous and that there will be consistent routine checkups of the sites in coming years, as is the standard practice in the declassification process. Stephen Higgs concurs with this opinion that the EPA has done all that can be done. I mean, my sense is as long as they are actually capturing all of the PCBs coming out from under Lemon Lane. I mean, I don't think there's anything else that we could do with Lemon Lane or any of the other places. It's probably been as effective as as it could be. You know, I mean, they dug up the worst of it, took it away, but it's just so omnipresent, you know, and so indestructible. PCBs have been found in snowmelt on on Mount Kilimanjaro. Every human being, you have PCBs in your body. I have PCBs in my body. There's not a person on the planet, I don't believe, who doesn't have PCBs, and honestly, a couple hundred other toxic chemicals. Specific contamination sites are likely no longer a hazard here in Bloomington, thanks to the EPA Superfund cleanup process and the relentless work of community members. But the now widespread reach of PCPs alludes to a greater problem on the horizon. Environmental threats, contamination-based or otherwise, are likely to escalate as climate change looms and pollution continues to rampage. The story of PCBs in the Bloomington area creates a movement to emulate, one that highlights the importance of community action and protection at the local level. This story of civil engagement in the face of environmental disaster may act as a guide for the next generation of activists. Up next, we have our weekly Consumer Watchdog segment, Better Beware, on WFHB. We turn to our host and producer, Richard Fish, for more. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your Consumer Watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Here are three more of the basic kinds of scams that have been fleecing victims for many years all over the world. There are only a small number of confidence games, but an infinite number of variations on these basic swindles. If you learn to spot the outlines of a scam, you'll be able to recognize it no matter how it's been updated, glamorized, or disguised. 
Three-Card Monty is a little game you may well have seen in movies. The con artist operates three playing cards and offers to prove to you that the hand is quicker than the eye. He turns them over and shows that one is an ace and the other two are not. Then he turns them down and mixes them up, sliding them around on a little table or other surface, and asks you to tell which is the ace. The same thing can be done with three small cups or spoons and a pebble or a bean. The question will be, which one hides the bean? The technique is to let the sucker think he can do it. At first, the sucker gets it right. Then the swindler offers to bet on it. Once the victim puts some money down, he's guaranteed to lose, because the hand really is quicker than the eye. Nobody runs such a game unless they've mastered the technique, and nobody plays the game unless they're a sucker. Then there's the embarrassing check game. The swindler entices the mark into buying something or subscribing to a service that the customer would not want anyone to know about. Pornography delivered in a plain envelope is a classic example, but there are others, something forbidden by the victim's religion or at their work or in their family. The victim sends money and gets nothing in return. He complains about this, and the swindlers immediately send a check for a full refund, and the check is good. They have not violated the law but the check is prominently emblazoned with the name of the forbidden product or service, and quite a lot of the victims simply tear it up, too embarrassed to deposit it or cash it. Finally, there's the Trojan horse. You know the legend. Around 1200 B.C., the Greeks couldn't conquer the fortified city of Troy, so they sailed away, leaving a giant wooden horse behind as a gift to their opponents. The Trojans took it inside the walls, and Greek soldiers hidden inside crept out at night and opened the gates. Today, a Trojan horse is a computer scam, an attractive, useful program or an app that hides a virus inside, which does you dirty when you run the app. Be careful where you get such things, and scan them with an antivirus program before they run. Archaeologists in Turkey, digging at Troy, have claimed they found the remains of the Trojan horse, although that's disputed. Whether or not the original was real, the modern version certainly is. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at wfhb.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at wfhb.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Cade Young and Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Brianna Devon. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. For WFHB, this is your engineer and executive producer, Cade Young. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org.
you too can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at wfhb.org. Stay tuned for Planetary Radio, an exploration into outer space. Coming up next on WFHB. Listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer 